straight into the Word. If you want to go with me to Mark chapter 5, I'm reading from a different translation than I'm used to, so I'm going to keep this, this here with me closed. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Do we have that this morning? When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And so everything's good right now. So Jairus, obviously his little daughter is dying, but he got to Jesus. He got to the feet of Jesus. Things are going to be okay. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'll come with you. They begin to head back to Jairus's uh, house. But then all of a sudden something goes wrong. And, and most men in, in here have experienced this something going wrong before a woman entered the picture. I see some of you husbands are like, mm-mm, that's not funny. Uh-uh. <laughs> a woman enters a picture and this woman had had an issue of blood for 12 years. So, so think about this. This man's little daughter is dying, and now he's on his way. He's like, yes, my breakthrough's coming. My blessing's coming. Jesus is with me. He's coming to my house. And all of a sudden, an interruption takes place. How do you react when something interrupts your breakthrough? When someone else's blessing interrupts your blessing? So Jairus, he sits there, this woman is being ministered to by Jesus. Remember, Jesus stops the crowd. He stops everything. Who touched me? I felt power go from me. She returns to him. And Jesus is, is speaking to this woman. And when he finishes there, we see in Mark chapter 5, verse 35, while Jesus is still speaking to the woman, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and they said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? I want to speak to you this morning from the idea, why bother? I feel like many of you in this room, I know myself, I get to this place sometimes of, why bother? Frustrations, confusion, anxiety, worry, so many challenges and, and trials that we face in life, we sometimes get to the point wanting to throw in the town thinking, why even bother? Do you have a current situation in your life? Do you have a loved one that you've been praying for, that you've been reaching out for, that you've been trying to get to come to church, but at this point in your life, you're just thinking, why even bother? Do you have a son or a daughter that won't listen to a word you say, and yet here you are at this point of why even bother? Are you battling sickness? Uh, are you battling disease? Are you battling confusion and angst and just chaos around you making you wonder, why bother? Why bother? Let's pray this morning. Father, this is your word and not my own. I pray that I would be nothing but an empty vessel and a mouthpiece to, to your spirit this morning. Father, you're so worthy and you're so holy. I just pray that I would not stand in the way of what you want to do in this place. Open our minds, hearts, ears, spirits, God, to receive your word. For it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the world today, I think we'd all agree that pretty much the theme of life is love. You can't really look anywhere. You can't listen to a song. You can't watch a TV show that, that doesn't have a big wedding episode, that the song isn't about I love her, she loves me, all these things going around. And, and as a young man, I didn't really understand love. And I think as you get older, you realize that love has many different aspects to it. And you begin to understand more and more that it's not the same love that you thought. You know, five years ago, I loved a number five from Taco Bell. You know what I mean? Uh, a number six, Baja Sauce, Baja Blast in case anybody's buying lunch. Um, that's where I was with love. When Taco Bell came out with the Dorito Locos Taco, I was in love. Hallelujah. Someone's preaching. <laughs> Someone get this, get this woman some lunch. 
man, love, that was love to me. And then uh, I met my wife and I got engaged and I, I got married at 21. And so at 21, obviously I knew everything there was to know about the world. And so I had fully encompassed what love was until I had my first son. And if y'all can put him on the screen, I want to introduce Eli to y'all if the screens are working. If not, trust me, he is a stud. That's my little man. He posed all by himself. I just said I want to take a picture. And he was like, yes, dad. You know, that's my, that's my man, and that's my firstborn son, and, and everything's awesome, and I spend, like, every day with this guy. I love being a father and, uh, and getting to be with him and hang out with him. And so then I realized that. I, I realized what love was. I had the love of a father until I had my son number two. This one's little Malachi, and he is a chunk, and he's a jerk, and I love him anyway. He, he just runs up, and he slaps his brother, and then he'll come back up and give him a kiss. You know, he's like a Sour Patch kid, and, and he, he just, first he's sour, then he's really sweet, but then he kind of ends up sour again, but it doesn't, it doesn't bother me because I've really realized now the love of a father, and so I think I got to figure it out, but then I watch the way my father is with these boys. My father is, a, is growing up, he's a pastor. He's a very strict man, a, a man of... Um, principle, code. He lives very to, to the T, to the line. And I didn't really get away with much uh, as a kid. These boys get away with everything. We're grandmas and grand, grandpas in the house. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all make our jobs hard. Last night, my kids spent the night over at grandma and grandpa's. You know what they, they're going to do today? Whatever they want. Because they don't have to listen, apparently, anymore. And so now I'm, I'm almost waiting for this day that I can see, I mean, my dad, this straight principled man, he writes songs on his guitar for these boys. Like, I just seen him mush and melt. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experience that one day. I'm going to find out what that aspect of love looks like. Well, God's love shows up in Scripture almost 800 years before this passage that we read in Mark through the prophet Hosea. Hosea is a prophet in northern territory of Israel. He follows directly the prophet Amos. And Hosea he gets asked this pretty peculiar assignment from God, and a lot of times we get asked these assignments. I remember uh, it was a Thursday night. I was a college student, and so what that meant is I was going to Buffalo Wild Wings for 50-cent boneless. That was before they raised it to 60-cent boneless. Life was good, and I was there, and uh, you know, all, I just wanted to spend $5, eat 10 wings, and have enough gas money to get home. And I was sitting there, and I had the worst waitress possible. And, please, and my standards are low. Like, I didn't go to restaurants a lot as a child, so well, nowadays when I go to a restaurant, I'm just happy to be there. Like, I'm good. You know what I mean? Like, if, they, if my chicken fried chicken is bleeding, I'm like, I'm okay. I'll just pick around the feathers. Life, life is okay. I know some of you are like, I ordered lemon slices, not lemon wedges. And yeah, yeah, I've been there. I see you. But no, my standards are low, but still, it was like one of those 45-minute waits, never got a refill on my water, and then the, when the wings came out, they were cold, and God says, hey, tip her $20. Excuse me? God, you uh, got the wrong table. I think it was that booth over there that had excellent service. Albert, give her $20 and don't talk back. Okay, yes, sir. And uh, so by the end of the night, and I wanted her to know too, like, this isn't from me. So when she comes up, I wasn't trying to be super spiritual. I, I paid for my meal with credit. I had a $20 bill on me. I said, God wanted me to give this to you. Not trying to be like, evangelizing and telling her about the Lord. I just wanted her to know it wasn't my doing or my decision. God told me to give this to you. And right in that moment, she breaks down. Apparently, I can't remember the full story. She just had the worst day possible. And this entire shift was asking God to show her something. 
Just a weird assignment. I, was, I used to get my hair cut at Master Cuts, and my wife put a swift into that. But I was getting my hair cut one day, and I'll never forget this woman. Her name was Althea. And uh, she's cutting my hair, and she snipped her finger. It was a tiny little cut on her finger. So she's like, oops, excuse me. She puts a Band-Aid on it, goes back to work. No big deal. The second I see her come back with that Band-Aid, I, God tells me, hey, Albert, pray for her finger. No. <laughs> That's God, like, uh, to show me someone who has cancer, someone, who, someone, someone who's, who needs a limb regrown, someone, show me someone who needs to walk again. Like, I'll pray for that guy. Albert, pray for her finger. And so literally this entire haircut is, is just me going back and forth with God. I don't usually talk during haircuts. I don't like the idea of disturbing someone who has scissors that close to my head. But so I'm just sitting there with this conversation with God. God, I'm not going to do it. Do it. No. Do it. No. Do it. No. Do it now. Yes. Fine. So get to the end. She finishes. She pulls the thing off of me, and I stand up, and I say, uh, can I pray for your finger real quick? She goes, sure. Start praying for this lady's finger. <laughs> Never in my life have I prayed, God, I pray that this finger would, would heal quickly. It wouldn't get in her way the rest of the day. Like, I don't even know what to say. And I finish this prayer, and she is sobbing, sobbing uncontrollably, and I'm like, sorry? <laughs> I, I didn't mean to. She goes, I spend every day praying for everyone around me, And sometimes I feel like there's no one praying for me. Sometimes God puts peculiar assignments in our life. And now tipping someone and uh, praying for someone's finger is nothing compared to what God shows up in Hosea's life. Because he comes to the prophet Hosea and he says, Hosea, I have a good job for you. And Hosea's like, sure, God, whatever you want. And he says, I need you. And you can take that down. That's not where we are yet. He goes, I need you to go marry a prostitute. Lord? Hosea. Go marry a prostitute. Okay. Sure. And so he goes and he marries this prostitute, and her name's Gomer. Bummer of a name. <laughs> you know, like if you're marrying a prostitute, <laughs> like velvet or like lace or diamond. <laughs> For, so I don't even know how to do that right. But no, so he marries the prostitute Gomer and Actually, at first, life goes pretty well for them. They get married, and they have a son, and so I, I know what that's like. They had a firstborn son. It almost doesn't matter what's going around. He had his boy, and then they have another kid and uh, another, a daughter, and then following another son, but, but then what it turns out is what seemed to be going so well actually wasn't going that great because those two second children most likely were not Hosea. See, over this time, Gomer had begun returning to her lifestyle. She'd been going back to these places that she had been looking for love, not realizing that she was living in love, but because she didn't know what love was, she couldn't receive the love that was around her. And so she spent this time going back and going back and going back until one day uh, Hosea wakes up and Gomer is gone. Gomer had left. Gomer wasn't there that morning. He wakes up. He, he goes to look around the house. He checks the kitchen. She's not there. He checks the kids' room. She's not there. He looks outside. The car is gone. Her keys aren't there. So now Hosea, who's the prophet over Israel at this time, is now a single father with three kids, two of which aren't even his, because of something that God asked him to do. We don't really find out how much time has passed now, but you can imagine the depression sets in, the, the worry sets in, the heartache sets in, and everything that the, the embarrassment he had to be feeling at that moment in his life. And so finally, God comes back to Hosea with a plan. He's like, Hosea, I got you. I have a plan for you. And Hosea's like, yes. I'm like, God, you're going to pick me back up. Things are going to be all right. He goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to find her. God, what? And this is where it comes in, God, why bother? 
Why bother? Because even if I go find her and she comes back, this is just going to happen again, God. It's, this isn't worth it. What am I going to do? I want you to go find her. And at this point in his life, Hosea is looking for hope. There are so many people maybe in this room and people around you that all you need is a ray of hope. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, it says, but these, th- these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, is love. So sometimes right now in Hosea's life, he's looking for the hope, but what God's trying to show him is his love. Don't let your search for hope get in the way of his searching of love for you. Does that make sense? God's trying to love you, but you're over here looking for hope. And he's trying to send love to you right where you are, but you keep moving trying to find where the hope is. The greatest of these is love. I want you to go find her. And here's where we pick up in our story with Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. I want you to go and I want you to marry her again, again, God. See, right now, Israel is at this point in its, in its culture and in its history where love is a primary theme. See, Israel is prospering right now. And so when prosperity abounds, people begin to look at other external factors to give them purpose in life. And that main thing is love. But the problem is the culture of Israel believes in three primary things about primary philosophies about love. One is that love can be purchased. The second is that love is the pursuit of self-gratification. And the third is that love can be found in inanimate objects. Does this sound like a culture that's a little familiar? People looking for love everywhere in anything. People trying to decide for themselves what love really is. We have such a damaged and a perverse definition of love in this society. We cannot redefine love because God is love. So when you have a distorted view of what love is, you have a distorted view of who God is. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, whoever does not know love does not know God, for God is love. And people don't understand, well, why can't I just decide who and what I want to love and how, what love looks like to me? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't change who he is. But everyone's still looking and everyone's still trying. What is love? But God is speaking to Hosea saying, I'm going to come through that distorted view of what love is, and I'm going to demonstrate to my people what love is all about. So now here's Hosea, and he has to go looking for his wife. He's a holy man, a religious man, a famous figure at this point in Israel, and he has to go looking for his wife. We don't really see how long it takes him, but I imagine he couldn't just call her up, so now he has to go walking in places where holy men shouldn't go. He's going to that side of town trying to find his wife. He's going to those places of business trying to find his wife, asking people, hey, have have you seen Gomer? Have, Have you seen my wife? I wonder if he actually had to ask some people who were maybe clients of her, hey, have you seen my wife? Gomer, y'all are, I'm sorry, man, I didn't know that y'all were still together. I saw her a couple days ago, but I didn't know. And here's Hosea just walking through, have you seen her? Have you seen her? Have you seen my wife? He finally walks up and he sees her, but what he finds is that at this point, she's now for sale. 
See, she had fallen even deeper into the sex trafficking industry. And what most theologians believe is Hosea walks up at an auction and his wife is on the platform. That had to have been so gut-wrenching for Hosea. I can't even imagine for Gomer to look up and see her husband coming in. She probably couldn't look at him. And here's Hosea searching for his wife. So what the Bible says he does is he buys her back. Being at an auction, he probably had to outbid other people to buy his wife. But wait a second, Hosea, she's already yours. Yet he paid the price to repurchase what was already his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Humanity is the peculiar possession of its creator. Yet God sent his son to die on a torture tool to repurchase what was in fact already his. Wherever you are in this room, whether you've been serving God for 40 years, four years, or haven't even made up your mind yet, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. You're already his. Yet he's still willing to pay the price for you. So Hosea says, okay, I'll pay, whatever it takes. So he pays the price for her, 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of wheat, and then right there on the spot, he renews their vows. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 3, he says, and I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have any man, and so too I will be towards you. You can stay there. I don't know that that's what I would have said. You're going to stay with me. You're going to be with me. And I'm going to do that for you. He had been humiliated and embarrassed and ridiculed. Yet here he stands at a, at a sex trafficking auction saying, you're mine. I don't, he deserves a lot of credit. He deserves a lot of credit. Right then the Spirit of God comes upon Hosea and he prophesies over the entire nation of Israel in verse 4. He says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, he doesn't actually mean David their king. David is a messianic figure. He's speaking of Jesus. He just doesn't know the name yet. And they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. See, right now in Israel, the people lived in fear. They lived in terror of God's wrath and God's judgment. They made sacrifices after sacrifice. And the high priest just once a year to go into the Holy of Holies would have to do everything right. And if he messed up one part of the ceremony, they would wrap a rope around his legs so that if he went in and was burned alive in the presence of God, they would just pull him back out. But here he says, no, something's going to change. See, rather, be, rather than be in fear of God's wrath and God's judgment, they're going to tremble in the weight of his goodness, of his mercy, of his forgiveness. You don't have to be afraid of the wrath and judgment of God. The only thing you have to fear is that you cannot hold the full weight of his love, so you might have to share it with somebody else. 
The fullness of his love is going to fall upon his people, and that happened in the person of Jesus Christ. Hosea means salvation. Gomer means completion. Fifteen pieces of silver, silver meaning the divine. The bushels of wheat meaning humanity. Fifteen being the number of God's divine energy towards men. Five being the number of completion and grace. The entire gospel right here. Yet here we pick up 800 years later. 800 years later, where there's a man whose daughter is dying. You can help me out, J.M. A man whose daughter is dying, and he comes begging of God, save my daughter, and he's interrupted. He's interrupted by somebody else, and he's got to be again at this point of why even bother? And so we read, we read pick up in verse 35, While Jesus was still speaking, they came and they said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? In verse 36, overhearing what they said. So think about this. Jesus is still speaking to this woman. He's still saying, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. And he overhears them say, your daughter is dead. And just he turns back, hey, don't believe that. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Your faith has made you well. You can go on. No, no, no. Don't listen to them. Real quick. Real quick. I'm coming. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He interrupts what they were doing. You have to cut off fear before it gets started. Jesus didn't hesitate. He didn't finish what he was doing, then come over to Jairus and say, hey, I know they said this, but it's really going to be okay. No, no, no. Before they could even finish, don't listen to that. Don't be afraid. Just believe. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It is fear. Faith cannot exist without the possibility of doubt. But when fear enters, your focus is on something else. See, when you're doubting, at least your focus is on God and you're wondering whether or not he'll come through. But when you fear, you're focused on the outcome that you don't want to see. So he has to interrupt these words of fear to tell him, just believe. Everywhere in scripture, we see Jesus say, don't uh, just believe. Right before that, he says, don't be afraid. He doesn't say, don't wonder. He doesn't say, don't question. He doesn't say, don't don't worry, but he says, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Don't look at the problem. Don't look at the that result that you don't want to see. Look at me. And even if you're unsure, just look at me. Peter, you're walking on water now. You might not be sure where your foot's going to step, but just look at me. Because the second he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he sees the waves and he sees the fear. You cannot see fear in the presence of God because his perfect love casts out all fear. We have to keep our eyes on him. We have to stay looking him. He catches the fear early because sometimes you end up talking yourself into a problem that never existed. Our minds start wandering with fear. They start churning and they start going. The prophet Elijah spent much of his life running for fear of death. And he's one of the only people in scripture who never actually died. And he spends his life running afraid that a woman's going to come kill him. Now, I kind of understand that part of it. But here he is running and moving. God, I don't want to die. Then the next day is, God, God, just take me now. No, God, I really don't want to die. And God's like, you are never going to die. Just shut up and look at me. You have to cut fear off early. Keep moving in verse 37. It says, then Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, to go in with him. Don't let just anyone follow you into your problem. 
right there at the crowd, he puts a divide. He says, I need you, you, and you. Peter, who was the biggest knucklehead of all the disciples, yet was willing to jump out of the boat, I need you. James and John, who he called sons of thunder, I need you. Everyone else, y'all chill. And he starts walking in verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Verse 39, and he goes in and he says to them, what is all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. He does not see your situation the same way you do. He makes a quick divide because to to humanity, death is permanent, but sleep is temporary. God does not see your circumstance as permanent, but only temporary. Where you see death, he sees resurrection. Where you see defeat, he he sees a comeback. The best movies are always a comeback story. And maybe in this moment, go back to 39, maybe in this moment, I don't know about you young fathers, or if you remember back when you were a young father, but I was not ready. We got sent home from the hospital. It was game four of the NBA Finals, uh, Miami Heat versus San Antonio Spurs. And I'm sitting in my living room with this little seven-pound whatever watching the game going, come on, LeBron, just take over. And then I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, they made a mistake. (laughs) There's no red emergency button on the wall. There's no remote that says, I need this. You can't put them in a cart and wheel them away for the night so you can sleep on that godforsaken, uncomfortable couch. He's yours. I wasn't prepared for that. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for that step of being a father. And I remember there would be nights whenever he would be sleeping in his crib and I would peek in and I'm like, like, is he alive? Is he alive? And I would walk in and I would look for that little belly to move. And when I'd see him breathe, I would know he's good. And I don't know if this father had been there before, but when Jesus said she is not dead, She's just asleep. I believe that father fully knew what Jesus was saying because he had felt that purpose. He had felt before in his life that relief. He had felt it's going to be okay. I didn't mess this up. It's going to turn out all right. Back to verse 40. And it says, then they all laugh at him and they ridiculed him. But after Jesus put them all out, he takes the child's father, mother, the disciples who were with him, and they go in where the child was. Pause. Statements of faith will always reveal the character of your house. Statements of faith. She is not dead. She is just asleep. It will reveal who is in your house and who is around you. It says they ridiculed him. They laughed at him. These were professional mourners. How do we know that? One, because Jairus was a significant figure, and whenever members of significant figures' family died, they would bring in people whose job was to wail loudly, to have big commotion. In some translations, we see they were already playing the flute. The second way we see they were professional is because they go from crying and wailing loudly to laughing at the possibility of a breakthrough. You have no room in your life for professional mourners. You have no room in your life for Facebook mourners. There are people in your life that will jump at the chance to come and cry with you. But the second you believe I can get out of this, they're out. They'll laugh. It's fine. It's over. Who is speaking into your life? Man, if you have to go to Facebook to put your problems there, you haven't realized what a great staff of pastors you have at this campus. Not everyone needs to be a part of your miracle. Many of the miracles Jesus performed, it happened in a small group, and he said, I don't even tell anybody. They don't need to know. I didn't do it for them. I did it for you. 
When Jesus causes a breakthrough in your life and you want to share your testimony, by all means, go for it. But you do not need that surrounding group of people to see what God wants to do in your life. And then it says, and he put them out. And this has to be my favorite part because I looked it up in that word for he put them out. It's the Greek word ekbalo. And it's the same word that was used every time Jesus cast out a devil or he cast out an evil spirit. And it's the same word used when he took the whips to the money changers at the temple. He, it means to cast out violently, to force out. If you are waiting on the negativity and the fear, the anxiety and worry in your life to just say, okay, I'm good, I'll see you later and leave, you're going to be waiting there a while. We have to take hold of your house, take hold of your thoughts, take hold of your temple and force out violently the professional mourners, the doubters, the fear mongers. Jesus cares just as much about the spirits that speak to you as he does the people that speak to you. There was no difference in the tone he took with the legion of demons than the tone he took with these people who had no business being in that room. Don't take lightly the people you allow around you. In the verse 41, then he takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Keep moving in verse 42. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was only 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. And he gives strict orders. Don't tell everybody else about this. This wasn't for them. Just get her something to eat. Just my little girl was just raised from the dead. Make her a sandwich. Cut off the crust, cut it in a triangle. That's how she likes it. He is not freaking out about what you're freaking out about. The breakthrough of the impossible, your child returning home is not going to surprise him. That disease disappearing is not going to make him go, oh my goodness, what just happened? There was no room in that moment for all this celebration. No, no, it's good. Now get her up, feed her what she needs to eat, and let's move on with life. A lot of people in Scripture had a good opportunity to say, why bother? Samson had, had failed every way possible, had his eyes gouged out, is standing there against the pillar. Why even bother? But with one last breath in prayer to God, God, give me this strength one more time. He knocks down the pillar of the Philistines. David is standing in front of Goliath, wondering who, who can beat this man. I have to give you this. This is an aside, and it's just too good not to. First, he walks up, and his brother says, what are you even doing here? You're just causing issue. And David doesn't even respond to him. His brother was not the enemy. The enemy was on the field. Make sure you identify the enemy in your life. Quit speaking negatively to people who are supposed to be your brothers and your sisters and get onto the field to fight the real enemy. There's just not enough room for that. It's going to get in your way. And then what it says he does, he walks over to the stream, to the brook, and he picks up five stones. Now, many people will tell you that this number was important, that it's representative. As I said earlier, number five does represent grace in Scripture. So they'll say, it was the grace of God that he defeated the giant. And yeah, maybe so. That's awesome. But you know why I really believe he took five stones? Because it didn't matter how many stones he took. At some point, however many stones you got has to be enough to start throwing at the enemy. It didn't say he just kept picking up stones. Some of you have been picking up stones for your sling for years. It's time to let it fly. It's time to go now and face the enemy. It's time to take what you've gotten in the presence of God and go fight the enemy in your life. Instead of sitting here picking up stones, I don't even know why I'm bothering. It's just not going to work. He has a sword and a spear, massive armor. He's nine foot something tall. 
Take what God's given you and go throw it. Why bother? God, I'm going. I'm going. Daniel sown in a lion's den, yet he prays Peter had messed up royally, denying Christ three times. Why even bother? Why did he even meet Jesus on that shore afterwards? Paul had killed Christian after Christian after Christian, was on a road to go get a document signed that said if any Christian fled that territory, they would have to come back so he could kill them. And his eyesight is taken away from him. He's met, he's met by the Lord who says, why are you persecuting me? That was a good moment to say, why bother with any of this anymore? But God had a plan. But God had a purpose. I have to tell you this morning, why bother? Because your child is not dead. They're just asleep. Your dream is not dead. It is just asleep. Your peace is not dead. It's just asleep. Your sound mind is not dead. It's just asleep. And until you walk in and declare to wake up, you're asking God for resurrection and he's asking you to be an alarm clock. God, all these, all these things in my life. When your kid oversleeps for school, you turn into a rage monster and start flipping bunk beds over. But when your marriage is asleep, you walk by idly. What is important enough in your life to shake awake? The Bible said he was given all authority over death. Death is not the issue anymore. It's sleep. And he's called us to awaken. Wherever you fit in the story, if you're a Hosea just wondering if your Gomer will ever come back home, if you're Gomer being sold, being lost in sin time and time again, if you're Jairus who says, I only need hope, but it keeps getting interrupted, or if you're this daughter who's just asleep, I have to tell you, when hope is fleeting, look for his love. It will and can never fail you. Across the sanctuary, if you would close your eyes with me. If you've been in a position and you cannot see the light, you cannot see how it would end well, you can't see, one, how God would ever take me back like this, or two, how they would ever come back by your word and by your prayer. But what God said to, go, to Hosea, he says, go again, church. If you have prayed, pray again. If you have reached out, reach again. If you have pulled, pull again. If you have loved, love again. It's not time to sit by. It's time to awaken. If you have people in your life who need to be woke up, can I see your hand this morning? I'd love to pray with you. I see hands all over this building. You can put those down. If you're in this place and you will admit you have been asleep, can I see your hand? You can put those down. It is time to wake up. The army of God will be a sound to this generation to wake up. Not by our might, not by anything, but by his power and by his love. God, I just pray for every person in this room. Father, I pray that your word would be piercing through their hearts, God. That your spirit, your love, your light would be so bright unto us, Father that we have no choice but to respond. God, I pray for, for anyone who feels like there's no hope, for, for anyone who feels like there's no point, for anyone who feels like it's just lost. I pray that where they're looking for hope, you would show them your love. 
We thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.